Good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. Today's show is going to pick up where we left off with the last show, and we're also going to get onto the topics that I didn't get time to discuss on the last show. So that's an update on the Capital One data breach, and then various types of software licensing and which one's going to be better for you, and then talk about universal plug-and-play. So there's here's the update on the Capital One data breach situation is, as you may know, there is a an outstanding lawsuit between the people who were affected by the data breach and then Capital One. And most recently, they were asserting that Capital One needed to disclose as part of this lawsuit in their discovery, they needed to disclose the results of the cybersecurity assessment report that was prepared by a cybersecurity assessment firm. And Capital One was claiming that the disclosure of that would adversely impact them and that it would provide hackers information about their internal network and you know a variety of things like that. And if you listen to the last show, I said that I can certainly see this, the position, you know, the validity of the position from both parties' perspective. While Capital One really does not want to disclose the results of the data breach cybersecurity report because it would give hackers more information about the inside of their network and their practices and policies and stuff. But at the same time, where or how does the impetus come about in order to actually correct the deficiencies in their environment? Well, maybe, and having to disclose this report and having some public analysis on that and saying that, well, wow, you know, you guys were not applying patches. That's really pathetic because we knew back in 1997 that you needed to apply patches. So what is so drastically wrong with your business practices? You know, there's another interesting component here is that uh, I know that the public at large doesn't realize this, but there is a commercial bank licensing process and that that process involves being able to satisfactorily pass certain types of audits. Now those audits are a review of whether or not you have the correct written policies and procedures, so the correct documentation, the correct processes inside the company, and then a digital right, a digital technologies audit. So it's like the human processes audit and then the digital technologies audit. So in some ways it's very similar to uh, HIPAA audits or CMMC audits really. I mean, compliance in general is actually pretty consistent across the board. Sure, there's little flavors and, you know, frosty frosty differences between between them, but fundamentally compliance is compliance and it's always based upon policies, procedures, and evidence. So the one of the big concerns here is that how does this affect Capital One's ability to have a commercial banking license? And then here's another interesting question about how were they able to pass the last audit if they had such 
glaring issues going on and they didn't have enough checks and balances. They didn't have monitoring in place that was going to inform them when things weren't patched or when certain types of intrusion detection type of events were going on, right? So I think it actually exposes flaws in the compliance process and uh, it certainly exposes flaws in Capital One's implementation of the compliance regulations. Okay, so moving on from there, I think that that's, a, that's an interesting development. Now let's talk about universal plug and play because universal plug and play is a massive security hole and it has always been that way since the very beginning of it ever being around. And yet, you see UPnP continually being used as the mechanism for communications, for network-based communications, for a plethora of items out there, such as, you know, smartphones, um, internet modems and wireless routers, uh, video streaming devices, uh, game consoles, tablets, computers, uh, certainly home security systems, right? And I use the term home security as uh, very loosely because I don't consider those things to be secure whatsoever. Like anything that starts phoning home to the mothership and is streaming uh, my data to a cloud-hosted provider that, you know, basically the, the contract with them says that they can do whatever they want with it, and then they just go and openly give access to that video stream, which potentially includes audio as well. They give it to whatever third parties they want to give that data to without any warrant. You know, so if there's a warrant, if there's a legal warrant in place, obviously third parties have to comply with a, a legitimate law enforcement warrant request. But you see, that's not how this stuff works. They're just given the data out. And the, the access to this data is given under the guise of the terms and conditions that you agree to when you go and put these Trojan horses into your, your, your environment. Like if you're buying uh, Ring devices or Nest or Alexa, I mean, any of that just flat out garbage. It's a Trojan horse spy device you are inviting into your space. And whatever amount of convenience that you think it's providing you, I don't even think you can understand what the implications of the d disastrous nature of that kind of technology, because it continues to be exploited and used for more and more and more nefarious purposes. Uh, and the nefarious purposes are far reaching, far beyond whatever the terms and conditions are that they actually disclose to you. So moving on from there, uh, UPnP is universal plug and play and it's a technology that's used for discovery of other devices on the same subnet typically as well as then auto configuration of things that allow themselves to be configured by UPnP. So UPnP is a network protocol. And the basic way to understand UPnP is a situation where you could uh, have a device 
that wants to create a port forwarding rule through your wireless router. And so your wireless router is a UPnP enabled device. And then this other device, like your home security system, wants to use UPnP in order to configure a port forwarding rule into your network uh, for that home security system. And none of these, like UPnP is absolutely incapable of any level of sophistication. So like you can't do really hardcore, strict IP access control restrictions and then couple those with, you know, DHCP reservations and aliases and policies that have specific GOIP blocking policies with special IPS and IDS intrusion analysis. You know, I mean, you can't, like, it's not that sophisticated. So at the point in time that you actually do want to port forward some traffic into your network, if you don't have all of what I articulated plus some other controls in place, then it's not secure enough. So UPnP, I think, is another Trojan horse. And if you look at quality, uh, commercial grade, meaning business class network layer equipment, you can't even do UPnP in it. Right. So if I go and I try to do UPnP inside of a WatchGuard Firebox, no, <laughs> it's not even possible to do because the manufacturer just says, you know, this is so ridiculously unsafe that we're just not even going to allow it in there. And the UPnP protocol is over 12 years old and is still ridiculously insecure. And there was, there were some more breaches that were going on in the beginning of June and the exploit was called Call Stranger. And what it basically did is it forced a significant quantity of devices to participate in distributed denial of service attacks and then overwhelm other third parties with, you know, junk traffic. It was also being used to exfiltrate, exfiltrate data from you know business class networks and you know home networks and it was doing that even in the context when data loss prevention tools were designed to prevent such attacks because what it was doing is it was creating a pathway around the typical technologies used for prevention of of you know, data exfiltration. And so bottom line is why do we continue to utilize this junk technology? You know, so if from a consumer perspective, if you are buying quote IOT devices, right? Internet of Things devices, if you are buying home wireless routers and these things include UPnP, then you are fundamentally putting a horrifically insecure device into your environment. And this issue now goes beyond a whole strategy that says, well, you know, I consent to the end user license agreement and I consent to those things. Well, this isn't what it's about. It's not just about your consent. It's about the fact that it's so ridiculously insecure that you can just be pretty well guaranteed that over the lifespans of you having that piece of equipment, 
the insecurity in it is going to cause unintended consequences such as the bad guys go and hack that device and use it to exfiltrate your bank data you know or they use it to get into your email system remotely and then start sending porn spam on your behalf and destroying your you know reputation what if they use it to gain access to your Facebook profile and your Facebook account and then they destroy your reputation there right so should you really be utilizing devices that use UPnP well maybe not so much you know maybe not so much so you have to actually think about these things and my suggestion is go look at the um, protocols supported by a device and then if you see UPnP is supported or used by that device then that is inherently necessarily telling you that that device is not designed to be secure because a device that's designed to be secure is just not going to have UPnP okay it's just that simple all right let's move on to getting some more understanding about software licensing and I've got a couple examples for you one is about uh, Microsoft licensing that is delivered via what's called the Volume Licensing Service Center versus um, CSP, which is the Cloud Solution Provider Model, as well as some Azure subscription things. And then uh, the other example has to do with Acronis software. Now you may say, well, I don't use Acronis. Well, the reality is that the this example that I'm going to describe to you is exemplar for a lot of subscription based software out there so it's still useful knowledge so let's talk about Acronis first now Acronis is a company that's been around for a very long time they make uh, excellent BDR which is backup and disaster recovery they make excellent BDR software when it is employed and configured and maintained by very highly qualified individuals and you know frankly I think you can make that same argument for any BDR solution and I have to make a little tangential comment here is that I've encountered a number of people who they'll go and subscribe to something like uh, Carbonite as an example and they have not actually done a full vetting assessment test on the suite of functionalities that a BDR product should have and so it's effectively an unvetted solution and then when the rubber meets the road and you need to rely upon that thing in order to execute a recovery in any of the you know let's just come up with a round number of like 15 different recovery scenarios you might encounter then you may find that oh well that product really just doesn't work for that recovery scenario and um, that's pretty that's pretty horrible right so if you have a BDR solution that you're relying upon and yet it doesn't deliver results uh, when you need it to deliver results in the recovery scenario that is relevant to your situation at that time well then it's a total fail right then what what was the point of it right so you have to actually do a full vetting on a BDR solution and bluntly the vast majority of people do not have the skill set to do that effectively and that therein lies the issue anyway so Acronis is a product that we've used for over 16 years and 
Um, I like it very much. It's extremely effective when employed properly and again, maintained properly. So there are two different licensing models whereby you can get a Cronus software. You can get it via a subscription and you can get it via perpetual licensing where you pay for software maintenance. Now, obviously, all the software companies are trying to go to the subscription model. There is some legitimacy in it in certain circumstances, and I don't necessarily have a problem with subscription-based software. It's really all about how that subscription is executed. So let's look at Acronis as an example of this. If you buy the perpetual licensing, then your management server is, it has perpetual licenses in it, and your BDR solution does not blow up in your face and explode and become inactive simply because you didn't renew. Uh, notice that I'm not suggesting that you should run software without software maintenance. Oh no, you need to have access to the updated versions of the software. So you should always run software with, you know, software maintenance. But a subscription model will cause the entire system to deprovision and your BDR solution bricks. And this could happen due to a technical glitch in the subscription synchronization system. It could be that your system deprovisions because the organization that you got your subscription from is, um, you know, I mean, it's like not working anymore. Maybe they screwed up. Maybe that system is messed up. Uh, maybe there was a problem processing your credit card. Maybe there's some sort of a payment issue. And then now your subscription is deprovisioned, right? Any number of those things. So the thing you really deeply have to be asking yourself is what are the implications if my licensing deprovisions because the subscription for whatever reason is no longer active. And think about the implications of that. So there was a school that we worked with um, years ago who had been grossly misled by uh, a large e-commerce provider that suggested to them that they should go with the rental model of software from Microsoft for servers and workstations and Microsoft Office and all of that. And what they had also failed to do was to inform the school about what would happen if they didn't maintain that subscription. And they also failed to inform the school about the fact that they needed to budget annually for that dollar amount. And I mean, I think those are important things to be advising people on. Well, so as the next year had rolled around, the school did not have the money to pay for the software licensing. And in, <clears throat> in some cases, their software licensing needs had actually changed. So yes, it's possible to re, to redo some, you know, to revisit a subscription uh, 
<clears throat> change license and counts and quantities and such. But if you don't have the money to pay for the subscription, then it would have been prudent to pay for it when you actually did have the money. And I think this is one of the biggest fundamental problems with subscription-based things is that if your organization is going to be drastically adversely impacted if your services and your software that is subscription-based deprovision, then, you, I mean, is that a risk you want to take, right? You, you know, really, seriously, ask yourself about that, which is why I feel that uh, capital expenditure models are way, 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 way better. Because you may find that, you know, last year you had money to pay for the software plus three years of software maintenance, and so you just paid ahead, and now you're all good. But then you got some budgetary crunches going on, and it's like, oh, well, we really don't have the money next year. Granted, it should have been in your budget, your, you know, your three-year budget, so that you know that after that three-year time frame, you would need to re-up your software maintenance. You never have to buy the baseline software again because you've purchased perpetual licensing. And as long as you maintain software maintenance, then you can get updates. But in the meantime, even if you have a situation where your software maintenance lapses for six months or something like that, your BDR solution is not going to deprovision. Also, back to the example of this school, all of their Microsoft Office licensing deprovisioned, and even the operating systems on their workstations deprovisioned because some foolish people had decided to uh, clone all of the computers using the subscription software. And then their servers deprovisioned too. So they basically were uh, at a massive dead stop hard outage. So one other implication is that I don't care how much money they thought they were saving by going with a subscription model by having that massive outage go and then creating another crisis because that's what basically happened is there was a whole nother crisis going on at that point where now they had to incur a ton of unexpected IT costs to go and redo all the systems and that's only after they managed to figure out where to grab some money from to go actually buy the perpetual licensing so that they'd have something to fix the machines with. So this same sort of thing can happen in terms of server licensing now where people, I, I run into, encounter people who are advocating the application of a CSP-driven subscription licensing for SQL Server and Windows Server, you know, really, really important things. I'm not suggesting that there's a problem with Office 365 being subscription, you know, that needs to be subscription simply because of the fact that it's really, it's a, a bundle pack of services plus software. But we look at if there is a problem in the subscription software that is associated with your servers, just simply a problem. Maybe it's an activation issue. If there's anything that causes the support costs or the stability or the reliability costs of that to go up, then you didn't save any money. And I encountered somebody recently who had um, 
inadvisedly engaged in purchasing CSP licensing for their servers. And then they literally had additional activation problems because the, <clears throat> the CSP licensing is specifically not designed for higher volume use versus if you purchase licensing as part of the Volume Licensing Service Center for you know, perpetual licensing for your servers and you open it up there, you're going to see, oh, I got uh, server standard or I got server data center edition and let's say data center edition comes with 75 activations. Okay, so the, and you can track these in your VLSC account. You get to the second or third activation on CSP server-based licensing and you now have to put in a ticket to Microsoft support. Yeah, so how much is that work stoppage costing you? How much is it costing you in terms of your own time or in the time that you're paying for your uh, IT service provider to have to be like, we can't build servers. Now, what if you are in a situation where you're trying to build servers because you're in a backup and disaster recovery recovery scenario? Okay, so you've got a BDR incident going on there and you need to get this server now and you need it fully functional now and you're not trying to run it on trial mode. So do we need another work stoppage that says I got to put in a ticket to Microsoft support in order to get them to increase the number of activations on this license key versus if you're doing that with perpetual licensing you will never I mean I can't imagine how you'd ever hit the the activation threshold I just don't see I mean it's pretty hard to hit that 75 activation threshold in some cases it's 45 but still it's 45 now, just because you have that many activations does not mean that you can utilize it that many times from a legitimate licensing perspective. No, you still have to actually legitimately have licenses for all of the things that you have activated it on. However, you just don't have the friction for utilizing the product and friction causes support costs to go up. And you also don't have the risk of it deprovisioning, <clears throat> right? It just, whoops, bye-bye, there it is, your server is completely inaccessible. All because of some really inadvised decision to utilize the wrong software model. So I go back to uh, recapping for you here on this just general strategic advice for software. I'm not completely against subscription-based software. I use subscription-based software. In some cases, that's the right course of action. And in 100% of cases, you need to keep all of your software with a software maintenance package on it so that, because if it's not subscription, then you need to have a separate software maintenance package. The bottom line is no matter what, you have to be able to have access to the updated versions of the software. Don't let stuff lag behind. And then perpetual licensing should be the thing that you look for first and you should always be asking the question what is the adverse business impact to me if 
there is any issue associated with this subscription-based software. So what happens with my servers deprovisioned, my workstations, my office software? And I can tell you that from firsthand experience that as Microsoft has changed some of their CSP licensing over the years and what it does and doesn't do and how you can and can't use it, because they can change that you know, end user license agreement as they see fit, and they do. And I can tell you flat out that there is significant business impact from just simply one individual who can't use Microsoft Office anymore. That could be your billing clerk. And now they can't, I mean, they've just literally got a hard stop. They can't do their job because the software that they were relying upon has decided to deprovision and go into you know, temporary mode where it's like it'll, it'll allow you to receive emails, but you can't send them. Or um, it won't allow you to open up Outlook and you can't use Word and Excel. And these are real things that happen. And you have to really deeply ask the question, what is the adverse business impact if a deprovision event occurs? And then say, well, maybe perpetual licensing is the right fit for me. So, you know, if you need any advice on that, as always, feel free to uh, contact us via email or phone at qualityplusconsulting.com.